you possibly could fight this and come out to the positive. But this is a really big company going up against. You've got these growth plans. Are you sure you want to sink hundreds of thousands of pounds that you don't have and a year of your time and distraction into fighting this? Does your name mean that much? And I was immediately like, yes, <laughs> absolutely. Hello and welcome to Shopify Masters, your companion for starting and building a business. I'm Shwang Esther Shan. Chrissy Smith knew she wasn't cut out for a corporate desk job. She had tons of jobs as a young adult, but none of them gave her the space to be creative and question the way things are done. So when she was traveling in her early 20s, she found inspiration for what would become her life's work. She fell in love with creative tea blunts, not the traditional teas that everyone drank in the UK and thought she had to bring this to her home country. That's how Bird and Blend Tea Company was born. The company now has 14 retail locations in the UK, makes over 100 tea blends, and is B Corp certified. Chrissy is here today to tell us about how she built an engaged community that crowdfunded the growth of Bird and Blend. Welcome, Chrissy, and thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited to be chatting to you. Super excited to hear all about Bird and Blend. I love traveling and I also love how you came up with the idea of Bird and Blend while you were abroad in Canada, no less. So can you tell us how skiing and your travels really inspired the brand? Yeah, absolutely. So I think I had that classic sort of just graduated pressure of, you know, get a job, you know, get a grad scheme, do something really like high powered in the city. And I sort of thought, absolutely not. That sounds like the worst idea. <laughs> so I took some time out um, to travel and, and ended up in Canada. Um, I'm a ski instructor. So I did a, a season out there in the mountains and started really thinking about what I wanted to do. I had a lot of jobs in my teenage years and early 20s, and I started to get a picture of the type of businesses that I didn't want to be working for and the types of people I didn't want to be working for and, and started thinking about whether there was a better way and started thinking about whether or not I could start my own business that perhaps did things in a better way. So I was out in Canada and I ended up spending some time working for a, a really innovative tea company out there. I um, wasn't necessarily super passionate about tea, which is a surprise to people. A lot of our competitors in the food and drink industry, they tend to start a business based on something they're really passionate about, like a hobby or, or an interest. I was more looking for an opportunity to start a business and do it in the right way. And tea kind of happened upon me. I'm, I'm a tea expert now and, I, and I'm the creative force behind the brand, but I noticed that in North America in particular, this trend for enjoying tea outside of the home, iced teas and the versatility was catching up with coffee. But in my home country of the UK, we were still very much attached to tea as a tea room or afternoon tea. It's very regal. It's very elegant. And I just wondered why tea hadn't been adopted in the same way in the UK. So I convinced my uh, partner, Mike, to come back to the UK for the summer and see if we could get something off the ground. And the rest is, is history, really. So you started Bird and Blend when you were just 24. You never had a business, didn't have experience in this entrepreneurship world. Were you nervous about starting something on your own? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I have no business degree. I don't have any qualifications in business. I also didn't have any qualifications in tea at that time either. So looking back, it does seem a bit bonkers. But I think because I was almost naive to the mountain of uh, that it is that you climb to start a business, almost my naivety and the, the passion and the energy to just kind of prove that I could really do something in this arena put me in a good stead you know I didn't have a mortgage I didn't have anything tying me down it was kind of like right let's give this a go and what's the worst that could happen I would find myself back in Canada the following year skiing if it all went wrong so I didn't have super high expectations and I just kind of tackled each section each problem each day as it came and over the years gained confidence in what I was doing and added that on bit by bit. I think a lot of people who are thinking about starting a business or taking their next step, whether it's an adventure or a career step or whatever, you you can feel the weight of what if it's right? What if it's wrong? What if I can do it? What if I can't? I'm a strong believer that if you've got passion for something, if you take it one day at a time, there's no reason why you can't throw yourself into something and, and achieve something magical. And you know what, if you're adaptable, if it doesn't work out, you'll find a new adventure to, to focus on. I think that's a better way of living than never starting something because you're, you know, put off by the challenge ahead. And I think one of the largest hurdles initially was finding a supplier and also convincing them to blend and roast the tea in the way that you wanted. So tell us about that process. So I came back to the UK and we were going to spend six months trying to get this business idea off the ground. I'd done a little bit of research, you know, YouTube videos, read some business books, tried to put sort of a business plan together, but it was in the back of a notepad, you know, nothing too advanced. And the first thing was to try and get this this range of blends. So I wanted them to be creative, fun, flavorful. I wanted the people, that, that our customers, our community to really have an experience with the tea. And Loads of companies have done tea for health. They do it really well. And loads of companies have done tea for like single origin or quality. And I wanted to really approach it in this um, slightly more accessible way. So I knew I needed a range of creative tea blends. But back in 2012, this was the tea industry in the UK was very premium. It's very almost stuffy. It wasn't the done thing to be blending big chunks of fruit and asking for colorful ingredients and I found it really difficult because I had this idea and I needed to work with pre-existing blenders and uh, and experts to bring my idea to life. I can remember the first meeting I had with one of our suppliers who's still one of our major suppliers and they're brilliant but that first meeting I can remember as a young 24 year old woman you know sat in front of this expert tea blender who's got years in the industry and traveled all over the globe and me saying like I want this tea that tastes like a mojito that's got lime slices in it and lemon and he was like that's not a thing you can't put lime slices in tea this isn't going to work and I think I just had so much stubbornness in well I'll show you that I stuck with it and um, ended up proving that actually there is a market for for these sorts of tea blends and people are interested and as we've grown over the years we've now got a fantastic relationship but that first meeting was a struggle I'll admit 
for the flavor creation, you also were enlisting the help of your community very early on. You had Facebook group and you were seeking feedback. So in the early days, how were you building up this community and also getting their feedback on samples and flavors? Yeah, great question. So I now know looking back that that was basically market research, literally, but I didn't know that at the time. I was just saying yes to any opportunity that would get me in front of of people and trying to find the most cost-effective ways of doing it because I didn't have any money. So at the time, like a Facebook group was free. It was easy to use. Getting a subscription to an an email platform was, was fairly easy to do and I could YouTube how to use it. And we would just go to markets, festivals, food shows, pay a 50 quid pitch and stand there all day and ask people to try the tea, tell us what they like, hopefully buy a bit. And then before they left, we would say, you know, will you join us either on our email list or on our private Facebook group? And it was a really small community to start with. You know, it was only a couple of hundred people. And I didn't know anything about data capture or owned audiences or anything. I didn't know this was great marketing strategy. I was just trying to get people to tell me how I could improve this idea that I had. And they were just really happy to be involved. And actually, I think that that set the tone for us really engaging our community. And we've done that ever since. So we're now 10 years old. And that engagement with our community, listening, asking for feedback, sending them free samples to try has meant that they've become really sticky customers that are really attached to us. So early days, events, festivals, and markets were super important in marketing Burden Blend. After those initial years, what kind of new strategies were you using to grow the business even more? There were some tricky conversations to be had, I think, about two years in when we'd been, you know, packing tea in my mom's back bedroom, going to markets and events and exactly that. Like, what's next? How do we grow this out? And we were adamant that we wanted to create a business that was focused on like human faces and physical spaces. Like, But we got a lot of advice back then. And, and I still get it all the time as well. You know, don't open retail stores. It's really dangerous. It's costly. It's old school. We had the major supermarkets over here in the UK approach us very early on saying, distribute, become a wholesale business, sell into grocery. And we just really thought about it and thought about what we were passionate about. We were trying to build a business that we were passionate about leading and creating a world where we wanted to show up to work every day. We had the luxury of deciding what we actually wanted to do. And the thought of being an account manager for a supermarket brand or whatever just didn't make my heart sing at all. I I wanted to go and, and be on the high street and create these amazing journeys for customers. It's like what I wanted to do. So I had the luxury as the owner of the business to do that. It is a slightly harder route to market, I think. It's more complex. It's got a lot of moving parts. But it meant that we were able to protect our brand for a bit longer. We weren't getting into price wars with supermarkets. We didn't get as much market penetration as maybe a a grocery brand would get. But back then, we hadn't really figured out anything to do with what our brand proposition was, or nor did we have big budgets behind us. So opening the first retail store and having a small website to post orders out D to C was a fairly sound business decision, I think, in those early days. We wanted to prove that we were onto something with this experience-based premise. And it was only after, you know, four years, I think, there was still a really small team. We had a couple of stores on the high street. We had our website turning over, not very much. We had 12 team members and that was it. And in 
four years in was the time we were like, right, I think we've proven that this has got legs. Take us back to 2015 when you did decide to open that first retail location in Brighton because from an outsider's perspective, they might think getting a wholesale account, that's guaranteed income, that's guaranteed stability versus investing in retail. There's large overhead and it's such a risk. So how did you get over the mental hurdle and really commit to something that you were passionate and sure about? I think that we just really wanted a space to bring the brand to life. And that was a key part. So we started with pop-up shops. We've been doing the markets and the festivals and we'd built up this small following. Once we'd done that, we then started to ask around and reach out to get insights into what sort of cities would be right for us. We went and spent hours of streets up and down the UK counting people walking past with like buggies, with student passes, with shopping bags. We went in the weekend, we went in the rain, we went in the summer, we went in the winter to really get a feel for where our first store should be. And we landed on Brighton because Brighton is a pretty open-minded community. They're real foodies. There's a, it's a student town. People visit there on their vacation or holiday, their weekend breaks. So we wanted somewhere where you could come and have an experience and then even if you go home somewhere else in the world, that's not where you live. You're going to remember, I went on this vacation to Brighton. I went to the sea. I went to Bird and Blend. I got an iced tea. And then we started to notice that they were becoming then repeat customers online. So the store was the entry point to the customer journey. And then we continued to serve them through the website. And I wasn't intending to move to Brighton full time. We were going to just, we, we went to Brighton to open the first store and Thought we'd end up back in the Midlands, which is where I'm from, but ended up just building a bit of a brand down there. And a lot of the things that are synonymous with Brighton, you know, it's very left, it's um, it's open-minded, it's foodie, it's liberal, it's a bit adventurous, a bit quirky, sunshine, seaside. It's the things that make you kind of smile. And that's something that is synonymous with the brand. So becoming a Brighton brand has been great for us. And now all of our manufacturing, our fulfillment center, and two of our stores are down in Brighton. And taking a look on the financial side, you did bootstrap a lot in the beginning. How did you make sure that financially this was also a sound decision to invest in retail back in 2015? So we funded the business on £5,000 of savings. That was it. For the first year, we just put all the money that was made back into the business. But we're talking, you know, a couple of tens of thousands. We're not talking loads and loads of money. I mean, it felt like a lot of money at the time. But we did hustle and it took us longer, but we didn't really have a choice. That's all we had. No one was going to invest in us or lend us money back then. We struggled to even get the first lease on the Brighton store because we didn't have any accounts. So we hustled to open the store. We got like job lot of scaffolding boards from eBay and like I built them for the store and we didn't get architectural plans. I used the IKEA kitchen planner <laughs> and like literally that sort of thing. You know, Mike and I didn't take a salary for the whole of the first two years. Friends and family let us stay on their sofa. We used to sleep in the downstairs of the Brighton store. So our business was everything. We wanted to prove it would work. And we funneled everything we had into it. And it was hard. It was a real hard slog, but it was also super rewarding. And within a couple of years of having the Brighton store, we had a working business model then where 
we could prove that the revenue coming in through the store not only was breaking even, but was contributing um, profit. So Mike and I were able to recruit our first team, take a proper salary, rent a flat. And once we had that proven, we were then able to use that to get further leases and expand the business out from there. Super excited to chat more about your expansion. I'm chatting with Chrissy Smith, the founder of Bird and Blend. If you are enjoying our conversation, please follow or subscribe to Shopify Masters wherever you get your podcast and leave us a review or feedback for the show. Thanks. So we mentioned that you now have 14 locations. What were you looking for when you were expanding? So throughout the whole of the business, our websites contributed about 50-50. So the revenue from stores has, has stayed equal, even as we've opened more stores. And that's our business model. That's the way that the economics work for us to be profitable. We see the stores as showrooms and then the profit is made um, through the D2C site. So when Brighton was the only store, the website was also doing okay. Um, again, we're only talking like tens of thousands. We're not talking millions at this point. But we had a database of customers and we looked at areas where those customers already were. And they were all over the world, but we saw some pockets of, of cities where those customers were. And so that was our first point of call. We also looked at some of the partnerships and connections we'd made through years of doing markets and festivals. So, for example, in the Midlands, we'd done a couple of pretty successful food festivals for about two or three years. So we knew we had some brand recognition in those cities. And then we looked at some of the key things that we knew about our demographics. So we knew we had students that were interested. We knew that uni towns and people that worked in creative cities and creative jobs shopped with us a lot. And we knew that we had a fairly high proportion of, of day trippers or tourists. So we looked for cities and high streets where people would kind of come in to have an experience, whether they're a student in the city or they're on their mini break or, or whatever. Um, and then just crossed off on a map. We found 10 streets across the UK that we wanted to be on. And then we just scoured the property listings for six months to find the ones that were right for us. I love how logical your approach to growth is. And I also love the model of utilizing your retail to really grow then on your site and direct to consumer. So how do you then engage maybe a tourist who discovered Bird and Blend and now they're far away from a store and they simply visit your online store? So how do you ensure that that relationship is nurtured and that they become a loyal repeat customer? In the first couple of years, it was really personal because it was Mike or I on the shop floor. You know, we didn't have any money to have a team. So we were there literally saying, like, we've started this business. We love that tea. Oh, you could use your teapot like this. Would you mind staying in touch with us? And we built up this database well, basically CRM. But again, I hadn't studied that. I just wanted to stay connected with people. And as the database built up, I started to read more and more about just best practice in nurturing your audience. And we started doing like community updates every couple of months where we just give everyone on the database a roundup of what we've been doing. But it wasn't sales based. It was very much this is how we've grown. These are the things we've been doing. And we noticed that people really got behind the story of the brand. And that's something that I didn't expect when I started a business. I didn't expect people to be 
so interested in the people and the story and the successes, I was thinking we'd need to sell tea. And we'd be talking about the needs and benefits of tea in your life. But actually, and to this day, anytime we talk about what people are up to, behind the scenes content, community activations, people really, really enjoy reading that and being a part of that journey. So that's what our like content was about in our email mail shots. And then similar on social media, just a lot of, you know, this is what we're up to today. We're off to Glastonbury Festival with, with Burn and Blend, like we're setting up the stall and we just got such an engagement of people that were enjoying watching our journey, which meant that later in the years when we came to raise funds to open more stores, it was a really easy sell because we just went out and said, you've been following us for a while, you've been a customer a bit, you know, would you help us get on more high streets near you? You know, will you invest in us and help us with the next bit of our journey? And the resounding response was absolutely, we think you're awesome. But I think they'd appreciated the fact that we hadn't been hard selling. We weren't following some sort of 70-30 split. They say 70-30, don't they, split of sales versus community and et cetera. We just kind of spoke from the heart and it paid off. But I think the main thing is the, the authenticity that came from us wanting to be in touch with people. Your community is super engaged and they were a big support for your growth for Bird and Blend. Can you share some milestones of your crowdfunding and how you were able to rely on your community for the different chapters of growth? About four years in, we realized that actually we could double the size of the business if we took on some investment. We wanted to open four new stores, go into London, open a team mixology school and invest in some of the infrastructure on the website. So we looked at all different investment. This was back in 2016, 15, 16. And we looked at all types of investment. And we looked at PE. We had some people that were interested in being angel investors. And we ended up settling on crowdfunding because for a business and a brand like ours, it's all about the story and you need to activate a community. Crowdfunding was perfect. You don't have to give away a large amount of your equity. You can usually get a fairly high valuation. And as long as you've got a good, solid proposition, you don't necessarily need to prove really healthy financials, although our financials were fairly healthy. And that was a lot of work. We, it was a, a good two months worth of prep to get ready for that raise, but it went really well. We were the fastest raised on the platform that year. We overfunded in 24 hours just from our community alone. It didn't even hit the, the actual platform, which was amazing, unexpected, but amazing. And um, we used that money to, to expand. And I think we had a really solid growth plan of what we wanted to invest in with the stores and the proven model. But what we hadn't planned for was the difference it makes to go from a team of like 12, 15 to a team of 70 and how the structures um, and the ways of working needed to evolve to really facilitate a happy and effective team of people you probably need to overhaul the actual ways of working of your business. So that was a bit of a shock and a really difficult year um, for Mike and I. And we spent we had to spend a year stabilising, basically. A lot of hard work went into setting up processes and, and bringing in systems that, that relayed the foundations. Once that was pretty stable, we had another really cracking year of growth, organically funded, and then we raised again. We raised in 21. We raised a million pounds. We went back to Crowdcube again um, and crowdfunded again. And we now have 
1,500 investors um, that own anything from £50 worth of shares to £300,000 worth. So there was a big difference in investor levels there. Obviously, the £50 were mostly our customers giving us £50. They get some perks and they want to support us on their journey. And the bigger ones were, I guess, slightly more angel style, but they were people in our network that had followed the journey and individuals that had some some expendable income to to buy shares in the business based on its growth opportunity and the financials that we could offer them. I love it. And it's truly built and supported by the community. I also see a parallel because I think that decision of not taking up wholesale and taking a more quote, quote, risky route versus you talking to investors or private equity, which might've been on paper a sure investment, but you decided to forge your own path. So I love the parallels between those two as well. And then I wanted to ask a little bit about your online experience, which do account for 50% of the business. How did you go about creating the online experience and also enhancing it and tweaking it as you grow? So the reason I was so excited to come on this podcast actually is because there's a really solid e-com engine underpinning the whole business really. And we have got better and better over the years and it's becoming more and more important part of our business and some of the challenges we've had are that the in-store experience is is brilliant because it's got a human there that is an expert who takes you through the world of tea but we've over 100 tea blends and it's a bit like a pick and mix a sweet shop and you're a bit overwhelmed but you're also quite excited and you've got someone there to take you on a journey and you take time and they weigh it out in front of you and you try samples when it came to trying to replicate that online that is quite a a mission. And we spent a couple of years trying to replicate that by using various pieces of tech that, you know, we've tried like video consultations. We've tried like some pretty smart bundling customer journeys, and we've tried like different journeys for different entry points. But we actually realized pretty soon that we couldn't replicate the in-store experience. And actually we probably shouldn't because our customer uses the site for very different reasons as it uses in store and quite a lot of our customers about 40 percent of our customers shop across multiple channels and that includes things like our tiktok shop as well so they're not shopping in lanes there's this one customer who is is interacting with us across all these different areas in store they want to have the experience they want to try things they want to take their time online they're looking for some inspiration but mainly they want to they want to find the teas they know they love They want to be reminded of those. They want to easily top up um, and they maybe want to use some of our additional resources to refer back to like recipes or how to clean your teapot, you know, and it had to click into our heads that really we weren't trying to replicate across two different sales channels. We needed to show up for our customers in the way that they needed, which was relevant to the place they are. So we took actions like, for example, we... In store, we categorize our teas by type and they're all color coded. It's beautiful. It's experiential. Online, you know, people aren't searching for, you know, rooibos tea necessarily. Not a lot of people are anyway. They don't care that we use the color pink to, 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 to say that that's herbal tea. They don't really even care that the name is Enchanted Narnia or whatever. That tells them nothing online. So we started thinking about the journeys of actually 
when people are looking for herbal tea, what are they looking for? They're probably looking for sleep. You know, they want something to help with their sleep. So how can we change the language on the website and uh, all the touch points that serves those needs, gives them the information they need about how good it is for sleep? And I mean, it's not rocket science, is it? But really thinking about uh, making it as clear as possible for us to find the right tea for them as quickly and in a way that causes the least confusion. Because confusion in store is fine because confusion in store gives you an opportunity to turn them around and bring them into your world. And they leave like, wow, I didn't know that, that I've learned something new. Confusion on a website is really bad. So you don't want someone feeling so overwhelmed and, and, a, and a bit daft that they just click off. That was a big lesson. A lot of the steps or strategies you had were logical and you just truly broke it down to what made sense. But to your point, for retail, it's you bring the customer into the burden blend world. And for online, it's how do you enter the customer's world to make sure that you're meeting them where they are? So a lot of our listeners are hesitant to start a business with a friend or a partner. And for you and Mike, you guys were life and business partners who went through a separation. Can you share some of the decision process of how you were able to continue the business partnership? <laughs> so I get asked this a lot because I think you're thinking about starting a business. For some people, the idea of doing it with a best friend or a partner can feel like the best idea in the world. It's exciting. You know each other. You share the passion and the energy. And it can be brilliant. And, and one of the things I will say about starting a business with someone that you're connected to is that you get to ride some of the biggest highs that you'll ever have with someone that you care about. But the downside is that you ride the highs, but you also really ride the lows. So, you know, Mike and I were able to really rely on each other and both of us were giving everything to the business. So there was no discrepancy between oh, you know, I'm working 70-hour weeks and he's not, and because we were literally partners in life. So it was our whole dream. It was our whole world. But that also comes with its challenges. And in the end, that is what led to us making the somewhat mature and amicable, as mature and amicable as it could be. It's always difficult, but decision that actually we needed a sort of support networks in our lives that weren't just each other. Because when you give everything to your business, you know, we were coming home from work and there was no boundary. You know, we're straight into talking about work. If we'd had a bad day, we would take it home. And I think the impact on your mental health over time could be really severe if you don't have some boundaries there and you don't have a support network around you. So ultimately, we weren't able to maintain our marriage. We, we got married and divorced throughout the lifespan of the business. But we navigated that. Well, I think we had to was the first point because we were both still committed to the business and we still believed in where we wanted it to go. Our vision for the business hadn't changed and our respect for each other and our skill sets and our partnership hadn't changed. Those things all remain true. We just had to navigate unpicking ourselves personally, which is difficult. But I think if any of those things aren't true and they become unbalanced, that's when people get into perhaps a sticky situation. Like if one person sees it a different way or one person's putting in more of the energy um, or time, then you can end up feeling resentful. And if it's a friend or a partner, you could damage your, your friendship. So I've been through it, right? I, I've done it. I, I got married, I got divorced and I would still advocate 
for being in business with friends and family because the things we achieved were, in my opinion, they're worth it. And I don't think it's a failure to have for our a marriage not to have worked out. You know, I'm actually super proud that we've been able to build something brilliant and then be mature enough and respectful enough to to say, you know what, that's not working in life, but can we still work together? And the answer was yes. So we just, yeah, we made that work. Another difficult hurdle you went through is the rebrand. Originally, your company was called Bluebird and you had to change the branding. Tell us how you went through that challenge. We started as Bluebird Tea Company and we had the name really early on and we were skiing in Canada and it's the term about blue skies and fresh snow. It's this day embracing the day and we just fell in love with this idea of building something up that was more meaningful. So it wasn't just work. It was, you know, days like bluebird days. And, and we loved the ring of it. And as we grew, we started to notice that our community started to prefer themselves as tea birds, which was cute. And we had our bird and yeah, the color blue became our brand color. So we didn't use any like marketing or branding agency. It was just a really nice name that felt true to us. Um, when we crowdfunded to the first time to, to go into London, we ended up in a trademark dispute with a cafe that had the name. And we did have the name trademarked, but not in all of the categories. So we took advice at that time. And the legal advice was, you possibly could fight this and come out to the positive. But this is a really big company going up against. You've got these growth plans. Are you sure you want to sink hundreds of thousands of pounds that you don't have and a year of your time and distraction into fighting this? Does your name mean that much? And I, I was immediately like, yes, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> you know, I love a David and Goliath story. And I hate it when like bigger companies or bigger people just get away with stuff because, you know, that that I hate that personally, but I had to learn a really hard lesson, which was, you know, I, at this point I had like 30 people working for me. We just raised this money from our investors. I felt like I had people that had invested in me and were counting on me and they wanted us to keep growing the business. They didn't want me to be sucked into a legal dispute. And so we started looking at what else we could be called. What I would say for listeners is it was actually a really wonderful experience by the end of it because it forced us to go back to the beginning and really reassess who we were and what we meant to people. So we'd come up with this concept in isolation, just Mike and I, and wanted to see if the world liked it. But since then, it had grown arms and legs and, and our community had had their own input. And so we went back out to our community and said, you know, give us three words that you think of when you think of Bluebird. And we didn't even say this is a branding exercise. We just said, please give us some words. And the things that kept coming back were... Words around community, the blending of tea, the blending of people, the bringing together of fun flavors, the bringing together of experiences and communities and, and people to share a cup of tea together. So we were like, right, I think there's something here in this blend idea. So we knew we wanted to keep the bird if we could, because we had our tea birds in the community. We wanted to keep the color blue. And so we ended up with the bird and blend the bird as a nod to Bluebird and the blend as a nod to the community and the blending of tea. And we have the ampersand in there as well to, again, to nod to bringing things together. We didn't use a big branding agency. It didn't cost us a lot of money. It was a bit of heartache, but overall 
we came out with a a better name. One thing it did hit was our rankings did take a big hit. So we we had years of you know SEO and page authority on domain authority on on uh, Bluebird and on social media. The hashtags and all of that was built up. It did take us about eighteen months to get back to where we were. In terms of that, one piece of advice I would give is to to not forget that, to factor in that you you possibly will slow you down a little bit. And also packaging and things, we had to waste quite a lot of packaging. So there's a bit of expense that goes into to a rebrand in areas you maybe don't consider as well. To wrap up the show, I got to ask you a few questions about your tea blends. First of all, what is your favorite flavor? And I know you're constantly creating new blends. So what kind of new products are you developing right now? So my favorite tea that we've ever created is Spice Pumpkin Pie, but that's a limited edition. So we have limited edition teas that come in and out. Um, so you can't buy that out of autumn or fall season, but it's it's the best. It comes back every year. It makes an amazing tea latte. I'm in love. And in terms of product innovation, okay, so we've got um, some cool Easter products coming out soon. We've done a tea infused Easter egg, which is really cool. I've just signed off on a new matcha flavor collection. So Japanese matcha powder will be coming out later in the spring. And I've also just finished the development on a biscuit collection, which should some come out hopefully in the autumn. Basically done some other iconic biscuits as tea flavors. I think that's going to be really exciting. People are going to love it, I think. Oh my goodness. How exciting. Thank you so much for being here, Chrissy. Thank you for having me. It's been great to chat to you. That's Chrissy Smith, founder of Bird and Blend Tea Company. And thank you for joining us on Shopify Masters. Our show is produced by Megan Coyle and Gogo Zoger. Our engineers are Matt Schwartz and Miku Betlam. Benjamin Gottlieb is our supervising producer. And I'm Shwang Esther Shan. And we will see you next time. Bye.